This is Quarantine Conversations. Brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth and our host... Hello, I'm Daniel Gowerbach. Is Daniel. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, Ocean, or Atmospheric Scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on the podcast, we're talking to... Megan Russell. Hi, Megan, and welcome to the Quarantine Conversations. Uh, Now, in this podcast series, we aim to meet people at various stages in their scientific studies. So would you consider yourself to be a student, a teacher, a hobbyist, a researcher? Where are you on that spectrum? Look, I, I was most recently, I was a student. I just finished my master's in science at UBC. So I was a grad student. Um, And now I'm a researcher. I'm actually a research associate in the planetary science group. Oh, fun. And uh, what kind of research associate are you or what are you researching? Well, currently I'm studying uh, volcanism on Venus. Um, So I'm a planetary scientist and I'm in the planetary science group at UBC and I work with Dr. Katherine Johnson. And um, it's really interesting because A lot of people would think that planetary scientists would be more with the physics and astronomy people versus the earth science people. Um, But we really study planets, rocky planets that are close to us, like Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, the moon, um, asteroids, like asteroid Bennu, and much the same way that an earth science would study the earth. And um, so the astronomy people might be Um, using telescopes to look at planets that are outside of our solar system. We're really looking at planets that are inside our solar system. And in our group, we study the ones that are, we generally study the ones that are close to us. Okay. Wow. That's really cool. I was just going to ask, like, how does someone in an earth science department uh, get stuck studying Venus? But that makes total sense. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Now, planetary sciences isn't really something that we grow up thinking about. It's not like they're a planetary scientist Halloween costumes. How did you get into this field? Oh, well, uh, from an early age, I loved everything space related. I loved planets. I loved stars. I loved galaxies. I loved following the tales of the astronauts. I loved learning about the space program. So I was pretty obsessed with it. And it was kind of been one constant in my life. And I remember uh, in grade two, there was a book in the classroom and it talked about uh, the upcoming International Space Station, and it hadn't been built yet. (laughs) The first module hadn't gone up yet, but it was talking about the plans for this International Space Station where countries would collaborate and live in space and orbit the Earth. And I don't know, that just, it really stuck with me from from that age. And, you know, I I went to air shows and I watched airplanes go by and I loved, so I think I just love studying things that are in the sky for a long time. And I've really just been following that up until now. I went to university at York University in Toronto and I did space science there. And then I worked at a company downtown Vancouver that was actually observing uh, the earth. So it was taking, it was photosat information and it took, it, we took uh, data that was collected from orbit, but of the earth and made it into really highly accurate Um, data sets that scientists and geologists could use and then I wanted to go back to school so I came back decided to just further my studies and I went to grad school at UBC and the planetary science group has basically uh, there's been so many opportunities to keep studying space and so yeah just been 
following my passion, really. You gave a lot of information there. Uh, one piece that I want to go back to for a second, you mentioned that um, geologists are really interested in the information that uh, satellites can give us about our own planet. Uh, would you care to explain that? Yeah, well, um, one thing that I sort of realized um, while working at an Earth remote sensing company was that there were many locations on the Earth that were just too remote for geologists to get to. Um, either it was just very far away in the middle of nowhere, the areas that they were interested in, or the areas that they wanted data over were in really dangerous areas or politically unstable areas. So it was much easier for them to get data, for us to get them data, and for us to get that from orbit. So the satellites were, you know, there's a lot of low Earth orbit satellites that can get data and collect it quite easily. Uh, and we would, the company would buy the data and just turn it into um, better data sets. So that was definitely a big bonus to be able to get data from space. And I guess that totally explains why geologists are now uh, being focused on other planets. A Venusianologist, I guess is what you'd be. <laughs> yes, awesome. <laughs> uh, speaking of your current research, what are you uh, looking at right now? I'm currently studying specifically volcanism on Venus, and I actually did my thesis on a, a volcano in particular. Uh, it's um, Venus has these really interesting, interestingly shaped volcanoes, um, everything from the conical volcanoes that you see on Earth to these giant pancake domes that are just quite wide and flat. And I was uh, studying, it's called Nerina Tholi. And um, yeah, I was basically studying the using images that were collected again from orbit um, during the Magellan mission that orbited Venus in the early nineties. And I was using that data to characterize this volcano and also the, the um, ground around it. And we were really lucky that that mission collected as much data as it did because Venus has a really thick atmosphere and it's really hard to image through that atmosphere. So this mission had a, a radar imager to see through the atmosphere and actually image the surface and also collect um, a map of elevations. So I'm using that data to just explore the environment around this volcano and um, try to see what kind of hints it had for us. And is this volcano similar to the volcanoes that we have in this part of the world in and around uh, BC? Um, so that's interesting. Um, I believe that a lot of the volcanoes we have uh, in and around BC are from uh, subduction. So when you have the oceanic plate uh, subducting under a continental plate, stuff melts, it comes to the surface in the form of volcanoes. On Venus, there is there are no plate tectonics as we see it on Earth. And that's actually one of the really interesting uh, enduring questions about Venus is, and it's in our neighborhood, it's the next planet over. It's about the same size. Presumably it's made from the same stuff, but somehow it ended up so different. And one of those differences is it doesn't have plate tectonics. And so we wonder how it can get rid of its heat. Um, so it may have similarly shaped volcanoes um, that we do have in this area, but they weren't made from the same processes, presumably. Hmm. And so that's also another question that you can ask about Venus is um, how are these volcanoes made if they're not made uh, through similar processes that we would see on the Earth? It sounds like you're asking some some really basic uh, questions about Venus. How long have we been like studying this planet? Oh, well, I mean, define study. Uh, people, 
in ancient times, people people saw Venus mm-hmm. in the, the the morning sky and the evening sky, and they saw it as a very very bright planet. Uh, sometimes, because it's it's closer to the sun than we are, sometimes it appears to go backwards in the sky. And so that was very interesting. And people looked at these wandering stars and they called them planets or wanderers. But we, we really have been able to study it earnestly uh, probably since, I'd say, the 60s. Um, the Soviet space program was very successful in sending actually landers to the surface of Venus. And that was a really big uh, challenge because the surface of Venus is really hot. It's hotter than an oven. It's 460 degrees Celsius. And the atmospheric pressure, because the atmosphere is so thick, it's 90 times what we're experiencing now. So when you, anything you send there, you have to expect it to get crushed and melted and try to mitigate those. So the Soviet uh, space program was really, uh, was really good at sending landers that lasted for up to a few, a few hours and collect data from the surface. And I think that's when the study of Venus in earnest really began. Um, and that was continued through the 80s. And then I would say the most recent uh, large scale mission was Magellan in the early 90s in terms of the, the amount of the breadth of data that it collected because it was collecting image images of the surface and the elevations. And there've been a few missions since then, but those are mostly looking at the atmosphere. So to answer your question in short, Probably since the early 60s, we've been studying Venus. So 60 years, that's not a lot of time to be looking at such a hostile environment. Uh, it sounds like you're really on the cutting edge of Venusian understanding. And that, that's really exciting because uh, sometimes when we think of scientific fields, we think that all the discoveries have been made. But where you're going, you've got a whole world of discoveries to be made. And you're really building the basis of our understanding of, of that planet and, and by extension, other planets. That's really yes, impressive. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's an that's interesting point because when I finished my undergraduate degree, I was like, well, I don't know what questions to ask right now. I don't really have any questions that need answering. Like, what do I do? So that's kind of why I went into industry. And then I started becoming really curious and asking a lot of questions. And I remember my coworker saying, all right, it's time to do something about this. <laughs> Maybe you should go back to school. <laughs> that's great. Sometimes you need to take a break and just, yeah, have a bit of a walkabout, I guess. Yeah. Exactly. Now, um, oh, have you made any really fun discoveries so far? Yeah, so this specific volcano, Narina Tholi, when I was looking at it in the images, it looked like kind of a really neat looking pancake dome. It was, it's, if you look at it in images, it's circular. It's about 40 kilometers across. And if you look at it in ele- with elevation data, it's about one kilometer high. So it really is like a pancake. Oh. Um, but the thing that I found around it was there was actually this um, really interesting uh, topographic signature around it that looked like it looked like a moat, like a, a, a low that was sort of concentric to the feature. And what we proposed was that that sort of that low around it, the topographic uh, moat was from the surface actually sagging under the weight of this volcano. Oh, and wow. for that to happen, uh, we proposed that the surface that was on the ground that was underneath this volcano, the lithosphere was actually quite thin for one reason or another. And there had been other papers looking at the thickness of these uh, lithos- of the lithosphere beneath features and um, seeing areas that are actually quite thin 
thinner than we would expect from modeling and thinner that we see on the earth. And those papers are proposing that that was due to elevated heat flow that was actually making this lithosphere that the feature was sitting on top of thin. And so this feature, because it was, it's much smaller than the other uh, features that have been looked at in the past, we propose that the surface must be even thinner. And so I went about characterizing the thickness of the lithosphere beneath this volcano. And when you say thin, like how thin is thin? Uh, well, I presented this data at the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference in 2019, so I can talk a little bit about it, but quite thin, like some of my values were three kilometers versus, you know, on Earth, we would expect 30 or 90 kilometers. Yeah, that, that would be pretty thin. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's really exciting. Yeah, yeah, very cool. And it's and what what got me is that we can actually I mean we we can make these me these measurements have been done not just for Venus but for Mars um, the Moon and uh, the icy moons around Jupiter and Saturn oh. um, so it's really cool that we can just take these measurements of images of the surface elevations of the surface and use them to infer something about what's going on underneath the surface like a thin a thin lithosphere and high heat flow. And do any of these other planetary bodies have any saggy volcanoes like yours? Uh, yes, to one extent or another. Um, I think that Mars has quite a thick lithosphere, so um, this the sag is a lot less for strong or thick or cold lithospheres uh, versus Venus. And Venus is really, really different because it does have a lot of, it does have quite a few saggy features. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, please call your uh, thesis paper that, uh, Megan Russell <laughs> on Saggy Volcanoes. <laughs> on Saggy Volcanoes, I like it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm writing it up for a publication, so maybe I'll uh, propose that to my co-author. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> now, um, in addition to being very entertaining and interesting, uh, <laughs> why do you do your research? Uh, how does it impact uh, our, our lives? Um, I would say it impacts my life <laughs> on a daily basis, obviously. Um, I, you know, I think that what I'm doing is really sort of picking away at the puzzle of the past history of Venus. So putting together its evolutionary history, its thermal history, its geodynamic history, what's going on underneath the surface. You lift up the hood, what's going on? It's uh, it's it's funny because we don't really right now we don't really have one answer of for example why is why did Venus turn out so differently than the Earth so anything that we can do to provide uh, hints or little pieces to the story helps and also you know when people look at other solar systems so planets outside of our solar system around other stars uh, you hear a lot about seeing Earth-like planet you know scientists found an Earth-like planet around another another sun mm -hmm. and our definition of Earth-like is not really well-defined at this point, I feel. And I feel that the, you know, if someone were to look at our own solar system, aliens, for example, if they were looking at our own solar system, they would probably see, they'd make a good guess, and maybe, they would maybe see three planets in a habitable zone, Venus, Earth, and Mars, and only really one of those is habitable. Um, so I think my research kind of helps to pick away at the puzzle of what is Earth-like and what happens when a possibly Earth-like planet goes terribly wrong. And there are papers that kind of came out recently that actually uh, have done some climate modeling on Venus and found that it might have been, been somewhat Earth-like 
um, up to, you know, uh, 800 million years or a billion years ago. That recently? Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's uh, quite the wrong turn that it took. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Your work is mostly done virtually, right? Yes. Yeah. So we work on computers. One thing that our um, earth scientists often say is that they have crazy field stories. I guess you don't really have a field for you to go into. Um, but I mean, we all have crazy stuff that happens in our day-to-day -day work. Uh, do you have any crazy stories from your research that you'd care to share? Crazy stories. Well, I mean, yeah, so that's, that's true. I, I personally don't really get out into the field, field for my work. There are people that are, I do have colleagues that uh, do get into the field. And that's usually when they want to look at an environment on the, that's on the earth that might be an analog to what they're studying on, for example, Mars. Mm -hmm. um, so looking at maybe subglacial features or periglacial features, assuming that the features that they're looking like, so they wanna study and compare the features that are on earth to the features that they see in their images and their data and say like, okay, maybe they were formed from the same processes. So, I mean, I, at some point I probably could have come up with a proposal to go study volcanism on Iceland, for example, because that's on a rift zone. And that's that volcanism is probably more analogous to the volcanism on Venus. Uh, which I don't know, that's definitely, it's a possibility. Uh, so I would probably go study different types of volcanoes and how they look in imagery that was imaged by the same sort of similar technology that we used to image the surface of Venus. I've heard some crazy stories from people from field work. I probably, uh, well, I'll let them tell those stories. <laughs> that's fair. Um, so yeah, so personally, I don't get into the field, but I have had the pleasure of being able to travel a lot, or I would consider it a lot for my research, um, going to conferences every year, like the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference, which is down in Houston, wow. um, and the AGU, um, American Geophysical Union in well, when I went, it was in San Francisco. Of course, this year, both those conferences are virtual. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, crazy stories like, you know, we would travel down to Houston for this conference and we would stay at a an Airbnb that, you know, had a, a I don't know, a really nice uh, pool. <laughs> like that's probably the extent of my crazy stories. Um, yeah. <laughs> But I think it's really cool that, you know, you, you um, studied earth sciences and then you end up hobnobbing with NASA rocket scientists. Um, it's not a connection that you often make um, studying rocks and, and our planet uh, and then getting lost in space. Exactly. Yeah. And um, well, um, a really cool story is um, we I'm very lucky to have uh, traveled down to see the launch of the Mars InSight mission by the Vandenberg's Air Force Base in California. Um, so that was that was really something. That was a really cool uh, thing that we got to do. And that was definitely very crazy. We got, so we were, we were staying in this nice little sort of ranch land area at this really nice uh, house. We got picked up, uh, at, I think it was one or 2 a.m. and we got shuttled out to the Air Force Base and we got to watch the launch from, I think it was a kilometer and a bit away. Um, however, it was very foggy that day. So we didn't actually get to see the launch, but we were there for it and we were really close and that was really cool. And I'm very lucky to have been able to do that. And what was InSight? InSight um, is a 
uh, it's a Mars mission. It's a Mars lander mission. Um, so it launched in 2018 and it arrived about half a year later. And it's currently, it's, it's the first sort of geophysicist to visit Mars. Um, so it's looking at, it's, it's attempting to look at uh, heat flow underneath the surface. It's attempting to uh, study the magnetic field or it's doing a very good job of that. And there's a seismometer on that mission as well. Um, so it's really taking the pulse and the temperature of the planet. That's really cool. Now, yeah. we all have things that we love about our jobs and things that we don't enjoy quite so much. Um, can you tell me something that you really enjoy with your, your work or one of your favorite parts about your work? I mean, my favorite parts is that I get to work with data that was collected by NASA or the European Space Agency every day. And I think that's really cool. Um, I get to work with people who are working on those missions. Um, I'm exposed to just really cool science every day. And actually my, uh, my, my work folders are all sort of organized by planet. <laughs> and every, every time I look at that, I'm like, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> I have to agree. I think the planetary scientists are some of the coolest people around. Um, don't, don't tell anyone else in the department. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sure they won't find out. <laughs> that, that was a positive aspect. Uh, there are also negative aspects with our work. Um, I found that the field of earth, ocean, and atmospheric sciences and planetary sciences to be a very open and accepting field, but that's been my experience. I know other people can have different experiences. So I'm curious, uh, is there anything that's caused you to struggle unfairly in your field of studies or work? I really like how you brought up that your experience might not be the experience of other people and that might not be the universal truth. And I think it's really important to, to keep remembering that, that everybody everybody has a different reality because of they're perceived differently in the world, whether you're a person of color or uh, you're a woman in science. Um, I have been quite lucky to have found a really supportive group at UBC and, you know, people that will step up to bat for you if needed and, you know, good role models and great scientists. Um, I have heard from uh, colleagues in other groups and other locations, other places, other countries that have definitely experienced, yeah, it's, it, hasn't been, it hasn't been as great for them. I do keep that in mind and I do, and I am very lucky and I do try to reach out and, and uh, be an ally to people who are struggling. Um, just sort of remembering my undergrad experience. So, you know, I do, I do remember quite a few times where people's un unconscious bias uh, were coming out. And that, that was definitely viewing how they looked at me and how they treated me too. I remember one time I was in the computer lab because um, in space, this, for the space science degree, there are a lot of uh, computer programming courses and I spent a lot of time in the computer lab. And quite a few times the computer lab monitor, so there'd be one person that was like sort of supervising, um, they wouldn't let me in. Mm. And um, they would say, you know, oh, sorry, you can't come in here, it's for, uh, computer science students only. And, you know, I would have to stop and be like, what, what about me? Like, why don't you think I'm like, why are you questioning this? Like they don't, you know, they wouldn't do that to anybody else. Mm -hmm. And like, when, as soon as they were questioned about it, they would, you know, you could see them stop and be like, oh, uh, uh, well, are you? I'm like, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm trying to learn Java here. Like, come on, <laughs> I'm doing MATLAB and learning Fortran. Like, yeah, I belong here. 
and I would have to convince them that I belong there and I have to show them my ID and then they would have to look me up in the system to, to see that, yes, okay, she's, yeah, she's enrolled in a science program. Um, I, I, I would assume that they would, that they thought I was some art student that was lost. I, I guess, you know, I can only make guesses, but I didn't see that or hear that happening to uh, anybody else. And there were quite a, there were very few women in the program as well. That's surprising for the, this day, or it surprises me for this day and age. Um, I'm sorry that that's still happening. Um, it was it was a long time ago. It was my undergrad. <laughs> <laughs> but again, that's another another thing that I see people do is like what I just did is sort of dismiss it and want to remove yourself from the memory or want to remove yourself from the situation. But really, I think these are the uncomfortable conversations that we need to be having having at this time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and, and thank you for sharing it. Um, hopefully the rest of us realize uh, when we do things like that, uh, that it does have a long lasting impact, even if the person is just shrugging it off. Yeah, and it, yeah, it's important to, I think, um, when you know you, maybe you see something happening to somebody else or some unfair treatment, you know, if that person appears to be okay with it, that it's, you know, it's happening to, or they appear to shrug it off, they might not be okay inside. That might just be their, their fight or flight response, you know, to remove themselves from this uncomfortable situation and not think about it. So I think it's really important to check up on people at a later stage, you know, sometime later after everybody's had a chance to think about it and to really like check in and make sure and let them that person know that you're there for them and that what you saw you weren't completely comfortable with so that they have a little bit of maybe collaboration and validation for their feelings. That sounds like great advice for any form of allyship, just letting people know that you're there for them. Uh, one point where we've probably all needed a bit of allyship uh, this year has been uh, dealing with COVID. It's impacted all of our workflows. Have you been impacted by the pandemic? I'm lucky that I've been able to keep working, but not in the same way. Um, so we, you know, although we don't have a lab where we do experiments in our group, we did have a lab, like an office, where we worked every day, and we we all had our workstations there, and we were more, were most of us were there every day, um, and so that was that was really nice because you you know you got to see people in our office. We had we have the planetary scientists, we have the adjacent uh, volcanology group, and there were the uh, the uh, seismic people as well. Um, so we went from going to our office every day to not going to our office after COVID hit. And I actually haven't been back to my office since March. Oh. Um, so there are a few, a few things, a few of my favorite sweaters I'd like to pick up at some point. Um, so I, I just continued to work from home and that was um, an interesting struggle, especially in the beginning because uh, things are really uncertain. Uh, suddenly I had to work from home and I had to make it work and I, I had, to, I had to force myself to not get distracted by the things at home, by cleaning that needed done, or uh, just, you know, all, all, the, all the things that are suddenly around you <laughs> when you're working from home. So that was an interesting transition. And I, I, do, I do miss the social aspect of our computer lab a lot, um, but I'm, I'm lucky that um, I've been able to continue to work. Wonderful, well, I'm glad for that. Um, I guess that is one of the benefits of having all of your work being uh, virtual uh, and in that magic box of the computer. Um, yes, exactly. And I have uh, colleagues that are on space missions and they they all continue to just work remotely as well and just made it work. 
but it hasn't been great for everybody. I know some people aren't as productive at home and I know some people are really like me are sort of craving the social aspect of it. So I think it was really important to reflect on what you needed for self-care and to try to incorporate that in the routine. And that's what I've been trying to do. So we'll, we'll see how, how much longer we, we have to do it. I should ask the exact opposite question. Uh, rather than working from home, if you ever had the chance, would you work from space? Would you be an astronaut? Yes, without <laughs> a doubt, yes. I would. I would be on. I would accept one of those one-way tickets to Mars. I would do it. In yeah, no question. Fabulous. Sorry, mom. <laughs> definitely. That was that was um, definitely one of my initial motivating things to get into space was to be an astronaut. And I really do hope to be working in this um, sort of newer uh, private space industry in the next few years. It seems like they would like to hire engineers. So I really need to learn how to market myself as a planetary scientist, market myself to the engineers and make myself useful to them. So <laughs> we'll see. Hopefully I'll be training or working alongside astronauts at some point. You're on the cutting edge of a few different fields. Kudos. <laughs> <laughs> well, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Is there anything you want to say before I let you go? Um, no, I just, uh, I, you know, I really hope that everybody's hanging in there and that you, you uh, do what you need to do in terms of your own self-care and that you, uh, you know, hang in there with this uh, second lockdown that we have in BC and that you uh, reach out to the people around you if you do need it. Thanks, Megan, and I wish you all the best. I hope you get into space someday. Cool. Oh, yeah, that would be amazing. And uh, yeah, thank you for the opportunity. It was great to speak to you today. Thanks for listening to Quarantine Conversations. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash quarantine conversations.